Hello, everyone. You are listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. This week's podcast is very, very, very unique and different. Um, and I clearly am emphasizing the word very, and um, I mean it in the best way possible. And that's because this podcast is composed of small little interviews that I did during the UCF Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium. Um, so this is the latest collaboration between UCF and FHS. Uh, the symposium is one of the biggest events of the year um, for historians, not just in Central Florida, but all of Florida, even outside of Florida. It's a very unique event. And I attended both days because it's a two-day event, Friday and Saturday. And um, there's a bunch of panels featuring a, a wide variety of different history topics in which certain historians from that res- from those respective fields uh, talk about and present in those panels. So they're panel presentations, essentially. And then there's the big, uh, this year, 10th annual uh, Gerald Schaffner Lecture on Florida History and Culture which features Allison Mitchell, and we'll get to that later. But this podcast is uh, also unique, and it's not only because of the the venue, but um, and how I'm going to structure it. So instead of doing uh, a long intro of introducing every single person I interviewed, I'm going to leave that in the description with timestamps. So I'm going to have everybody's name that I interviewed during the event, and with their title, with their respective titles, and the timestamp in which they take place in this podcast episode. That way, you know, if you see someone you want to hear, you go to that timestamp. Or if you want to go through all of them, it's just in an organized fashion rather than me going through the list and saying every single one of them in the intro. And to smoothly facilitate that organized fashion process of the timestamps, um, I will have transition music in between each of the little uh, interviews I had during the event that way it just doesn't stop abruptly and it sounds kind of weird um, as in the listener perspective so there will be transition music between each interview and until the last one where it will just abruptly end and then you'll hear me talk again in the conclusion and the outro of this episode so that's another uh, different aspect of this episode another uh, unique component of this podcast episode is that they're technically in parts, but I'm I'm not labeling them in parts. So, for example, this is episode 21 that you're listening to, um, and the next episode is episode 22. I, I wasn't I didn't want to do episode 21 part two, uh, but theoretically that's what it is. Uh, episode 21 is day one of the FHS annual meeting symposium, and then episode 22 is day two of the event. So day one is all the are all the interviews that. I did during the first day of the of the symposium, and then episode 22 is day two, um, and those are all the interviews I got in day two of the event, and then I guess you could say a part three to this, you know, big event, because at the end of the day, all these interviews and um, chats are within this one single event, so theoretically, part three is the Schaffner Lecture interview, Um I'm fortunate enough to interview this year's Shofter Lecture presenter, uh, a precedent that Holly started. So I highly recommend going back to the, our feed in Night's History Cast, uh, wherever you get the podcast, and go through those old episodes. For example, there's one uh, with uh, Dr. Gary Mormino about Florida and the Age of Terror. Very interesting. Um, so every year when this event would come up, Holly would interview whoever was presenting at this at this lecture series. So 
I wanted to continue that, of course, because um, I think it's highly imperative. So um, this year's Schaffner Lecture, like I mentioned, is Allison Mitchell, a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia. And um, that'll be part three, but that again, I won't name it part three. It'll be episode 23. And that's a full podcast interview. So I got to sit down with her and talk about um, her involvement in the history field, her career that she's had so far, and um, in the future that she hopes to have in this career and what she sees in that future. And a bunch of more things that I don't want to spoil here. So this intro is already very long. Um, so enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello, I'm Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me Ben Broatmarkle, Executive Director of the Florida Historical Society. Hello, Dr. Broatmarkle. Um, can you explain to me the significance of this event? Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of historical significance. Uh, back in uh, 2020, it was decided to split our annual meeting, which had been going on for about a century, into two separate events. Uh, the annual meeting and symposium, and the public history forum. Uh, unfortunately, of course, everybody knows what happened in 2020. So for a couple of years there, it was they were both virtual events. So this is the first in-person, uh, totally in-person. We had some hybrid events, but this is the first totally in-person annual meeting and symposium here at the University of Central Florida. And it, uh, that this event will always be at the University of Central Florida. And our public history forum in May is that in a different Florida city each year. Can you explain uh, your specific role in this event? Well, I, as I said, I'm executive director of the Florida Historical Society, but I really must uh, give credit where credit is due. Uh, the logistics and uh, the uh, presentations, the programming for this event was really under the auspices of the University of Central Florida and particularly Connie Lester. And we, the Florida Historical Society has a long history of a relationship with uh, the University of Central Florida. Uh, many of, uh, well, our academic journal has been published here since 1995. And uh, we have many interns, yourself included, that, that have served at the Florida Historical Society and done great work. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's uh, but for this particular conference, it was really the uh, University of Central Florida, the College of Arts and Humanities, and the History Department uh, and the team led by Connie Lester that, that really put this together. There were board members of the Florida Historical Society, uh, Irvin D.S. Winsboro and James Michael Denham, who also helped with the programming and selecting the papers to be presented. What are some of the main takeaways you want guests and attendees to have when they leave this event? Well, there's, there's so many great uh, paper presentations and, and panels uh, going on. Uh, and I just want people to get excited about Florida history. And there's so much to be excited about. Uh, the Gerald H. Schaffner Lecture uh, is being presented by uh, Allison Mitchell, who's going to be talking about uh, CORE and their work in uh, North Florida in particular, uh, trying to uh, correct voter suppression of African Americans, and that should be a really uh, stimulating discussion. So there's so many, so many different topics, and I would like people just to walk away uh, inspired and excited about Florida history and culture. 
Thank you for sitting down with me and having this quick chat, Dr. Ben Broke-Marco, Executive Director at the Florida Historical Society. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, I'm Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast, and I have with me here today... Connie Lester. Hi, Connie Lester. Can you explain to our listeners what you do in this profession and your role in this symposium event? Well, I'm an associate professor in the history department. I'm the director of the Riches Digital Archiving Program, and I am the editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. And for this, um, this meeting, I was the program chair and the local arrangements uh, director. What are some of the main takeaways you want guests and attendees to have when they leave the special event? I want them to see the breadth of Florida history. Um, a state history can be defined by a few events that everybody knows about. Um, but Florida history is very old and very deep and very diverse. And I want them to be able to see that. And I want our students to see how exciting it can be to work in Florida history. Related to that question, to the answer you gave, What's the significance of having such a, an event like this? It's significant, I think, that we're having it on a university campus. We have other meetings that are uh, scattered around the state. Um, but I think having it on a university campus means that we, uh, we are saying to our audience that uh, we are very interested in the work that students and faculty are doing uh, in Florida history and that we want to highlight it. It's a pleasure to have you here. Chat with me really quickly. I really appreciate it, Dr. Lester. Thank you. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. I have with me here today. Uh, hello, I'm Christine Ardlin. Uh I'm from um, Miami, Florida. I'm uh, adjunct lecturer at Florida International University, although I haven't been working since the pandemic, and I'm concentrating on my writing right now. So today I think we're going to be talking about Charlotte Conrad, the first United States Indian Service field nurse who worked among the Seminoles in, from 1934 to 46. And she has not been uh, written about, uh, or we, indeed we don't know too much about her, so I was trying to bring her out of the shadows of Florida history and Seminole history specifically. Thank you. What were some of the main takeaways you wanted uh, your audience members in your panel presentation to, to leave with? Well, yes. Um, my, my questions concerning Conrad was uh, she, worked there, she worked within the um, Seminole community, a very vast community, uh, vast uh, Everglades, unique uh, environment. Um, she did not have a lot of support, federal or bureaucratic support. And uh, she managed, what did she accomplish for the 12 years that she worked there? It was under very difficult conditions. What, um, how would you say, with this particular story um, of this field nurse, how's the, the field nursing has evolved over time? Okay, well, well, let me first go back to the other question, because I didn't really answer that. I wanted to say uh, um, what she did accomplish, uh, and that was actually not very much. Uh, 
she knew the Indians and the territory and the services very well. And in her final report, she, she ends up talking about the same problems that she had faced all along, i.e. the difficulty of transportation, the slowness and the difficulty in getting things done, and the slowness and difficulty of getting any services that she requested. In fact, m many of the questions she did not, uh, many of the services she did not um, end up uh, re receiving. She'd hoped that things would improve, but they had not. And she finally, when she finally leaves, it was just after World War II, and she was hoping that the local situation was going to change somewhat. She was hoping for an earlier, uh, you know, an, a, a brighter future with the war, with, with the world just coming out of war. But in fact, the problems were just the same. Now, um, at that time, Betty May Tiger Jumper was the first seminal to go, one, one of the first seminals to go to school. And she was, she graduated from a nursing school, in fact. And then she returned and she was, maybe that was a sign of optimism. Maybe that was a sign that um, things were going to change. Uh, and so uh, we, we can just see that Charlotte Conrad spent 12 years with great physical, emotional, and difficult, uh, difficult work singly. And so really from the very beginning, without the, without the support, she was sort of doomed to fail. Okay, thank you. My final question would be, how would you want her legacy to be remembered with this book and panel presentation you gave? Yeah, that, that's a very good question because I think that her legacy, we must recognize the work that she did to try to get these, the, the, the health situation resolved. It wasn't that she, she didn't want to, she saw what was needed, but she just could not provide it. For example, there was a, a tremendous problem with hookworm. Now, hookworm was um, prevalent in, all over the South, in all races, but it was treatable. But she could not understand why she could not get um, s services such as sanitary toilets for, for, uh, to help alleviate the problem. She couldn't understand why um, federal money was spent on um, sending uh, people to hospital when they, uh, what they really needed was nutrition. These, some of these people were starving. They were so weak, some of them couldn't walk. They, went to they would go to hospital, spend several days in hospital, really get nutrition, and then be sent back to the same environment. So it, it was, it was a, a, a cycle of events that Conrad fought against. She uh, was very, very vocal with her reports but she just couldn't get the services she needed. Thank you very much for having this quick little chat with me. Un unless you have some final thoughts you want to say, I can see with your face. Uh, no, well, uh, I, I don't I, mind. I, you I, I could just go on to talk about Con uh, Conrad uh, uh, yeah, any, for a very long time. Uh, any, any final thoughts or words? 
Well, let, 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 me, um, let me just tell you that uh, Conrad could see the potential for disease. She could report on the cases. She could transport the patients to hospital. She could try to deliver curative measures. But without the roadmap for the prevention, her anger grew and grew. In fact, without the financial support, she saw little hope. She could see that she could not do anything to avert the awful tragedies of the Glades. And I think those awful tragedies of the Glades where it is something that she really was trying her best to um, solve, to help, to, to help the, 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 in the um, Seminoles. But she was just strapped. It must have been very frustrating for her. In fact, it was so frustrating for her that um, one of the requirements of an Indian field nurse was to write these extensive reports. And she was so angry and so annoyed uh, at the time she was spending writing these reports that she grew so, so angry. And, she, she, uh, and I think we can get a sense of her fire in one of the reports she wrote to her supervisors. And she said, and I quote her, I'm so, I'm indeed sorry if you've been embarrassed because I've failed to send in reports. But during the past three years, I've spent considerable time shoveling myself out after being bogged down in the heart of the Everglades because of very poor equipment. And I might add here that her descriptions, her narratives about the environment are truly, are truly um, interesting. I mean, you can get a feel of how she got stuck in her car, how the car was bogged down, and, uh, and indeed how, how many of, uh, of the Seminoles helped her, uh, get, her get the car um, out of the bogs with nothing, just a, just a cypress pole. Sometimes, uh, in one report, she wrote about how she was trying to deliver this hookworm treatment, which was three three doses of treatment, and, and the patient could be anywhere. The patient could be in one place, or, and if you know the vast Everglades, that was a tremendous undertaking. Uh, it could be in, one patient could be in, the patient could be in Imokali or in Okeechobee or somewhere else, and when, you, when, when she got there, the patient wasn't there. But on one occasion, she, wrote, she writes about um, the, 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 the car had to, had to, she had to, the car had to be um, uh, stopped and she had to walk, walk on these elevated um, logs, all these sunken logs, in order to get to the, the small camp in the middle of the Everglades. And then the patient wasn't there. You can just see her frustration mount. It, it, it is a tremendously uh, interesting and important um, uh, uh, information that helps us to see how um, Charlotte Conrad worked to get to know the patients, to get to, to meet the patients. Remember, she was an outsider, so she had to get to know the patients, meet the patients, and, um, and, and, and do her best for the patients. It's truly an interesting story. Thank you. Yeah, I told you, like I mentioned to you off mic, I wish I was I had a clone of myself and go to all these different panels. I, I, it bothers me that I couldn't get to see um, your panel presentation, but I look forward to reading your book now, and I appreciate you sitting here. So um, thank you very much. Th thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. I have with me here uh, Dr. Jacob Ivey from Florida Memorial University. Hello, Dr. Jacob Ivey. Um, Dr. Jacob Ivey presented in panel three, which was titled Activism, Difficult History, and Challenging Times in session one of day one of the Florida Historical Society Symposium event. And the title of his panel presentation is called Our Social and Moral Conditions About the Situation, Anti-Apartheid Movement in Gainesville and Tallahassee, Florida. So, Dr. Ivey, I would like you to explain to our listeners um, some of the main takeaways and focal points of your panel presentation. Absolutely. So in the 1980s, there was a mass movement attempting to undermine and eventually remove the apartheid regime in South Africa, a white supremacist regime that came into power in 1948 that continued to both ostracize, segregate, and often eliminate the large swath of its black population, which composed about 90% of the country as a whole. Uh, this human rights struggle, this civil rights struggle, probably I would say one of the defining civil rights struggles of the 20th century, really reached ahead in the 1980s. It's an international issue, so much so, in fact, that individuals, most notably students on college campuses, begin protesting businesses, governments, and institutions that did business with and by proxy supported the South African regime. As a result of this, many of these students went to the closest thing that they could protest against, their own university, and called for them to divest from doing business with South Africa as a whole. And basically my talk today was about one of the many protests that took place across the country, notably in the state of Florida, at the University of Florida, as well as uh, the Florida State University in Tallahassee. Yeah, I, I find it interesting just within the title alone of uh, Gainesville and Tallahassee's um, role in this broader international story. And it often, if I'm being quite honest with you, I didn't know. So I guess you could. how would you would want to um, explain to our listeners how involved were Gainesville, Tallahassee and other universities in this broader story? Because oftentimes it doesn't get mentioned. Well, often we forget that the global anti-apartheid movement was a movement that very much influenced a mass variety of individuals from all walks of life. Uh, you have businessmen, you have politicians, you have pop culture artists, uh, and in fact, a number of musicians, including a very famous music video called I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, uh, goes through with individuals like Bono being involved. Um, so it's all walks of life who are involved with this. Partially because I think of the universal struggle that individuals were experiencing in South Africa and how it resonated with individuals in the United States, most notably people, of course, who are at this point less than 20 years removed from the high point of the civil rights movement. So what you see is these student activists who are seeing all of these horrible images on the news are wondering what they can do to influence and create change within their society as a whole. And in truth, this happens all across the United States and all walks of life and all levels of society. Initially, you have individuals trying to divest um, state pension programs uh, initially in places like Wisconsin and Massachusetts, but then that eventually moves to small cities, counties, councils, and then college campuses. Some of the first examples of these, and one of the most that people are probably aware of, are at Howard University, the very famous historic black college, uh, Columbia, UC Berkeley, you know, the places where you'd expect these protests to take place. The thing is, 
my work sort of argues that because of sort of the universality of this struggle and the way it resonates with people of all walks of life, even in a place like Florida, which doesn't have a, a large reputation for protesting these types of civil rights struggles, these students see these images on the news, they read about it in their local papers, and they essentially say, I need to do something about it. And I think it's that universalism that really illustrates that Florida is no different than any of these other locations. In fact, all of these same messages, all these same ideas are resonating with these individuals, which cause them to go out, protest, and in the case of the University of Florida, stage a 40-day sleep-in in front of the main administrative building and a continuing attempt to protest the university's support for businesses that worked with the South African government. Yeah, I find it highly interesting that you... you you took Florida and put in a situation where it's not so different. People nowadays, um, whether Floridians or not Floridians, they like to think Florida is um, highly different and unique from other trends that are happening in not just other states, but in other countries. And to a certain extent, that's true, but sometimes it's not. And with your story, it highlights that. Um, My next question would be, what were some of the results of these student protests? So I would love to say that these results were overwhelmingly positive and the students successfully challenged the institutions that were associated with these universities. But unfortunately, as is the case for a lot of these anti-apartheid protests, many of them are not as extensive as we would hope. Uh, Most notably, many of them wanted to fully divest. They wanted their universities to fully divest from businesses and companies that were working with South Africa. That doesn't happen in the case of the University of Florida. Part of it is because the Board of Governors and the people who are in charge believe that that would be resulting in potential financial ruin for the pension systems and other investment programs associated with the university. I should note at the same time, Florida State University did fully divest, and they were quite proud of it, and essentially claimed that we had taken that additional step in succeeding in at least on one small level challenging and weakening this overall apartheid regime. For the state of Florida more broadly, again, there are some elements of partial success. I've also written about similar protest movements going on with the city of Orlando and the city of Orlando attempting to divest. Uh, We see similar protests in Miami, Tampa, and really all across the state. But there isn't this overwhelming level of success because when all is said and done, the state of Florida decides that they are only going to take a partial measure. Um, A piece of legislation is put forward in 1985-1986 that calls for Florida fully divest. It dies on the floor. It never reaches a a full vote. Um, And even by the time Nelson Mandela is freed from prison after being in jail for 27 years in 1990, Florida has still not completely severed its relationship with the apartheid regime. So while I would say on one hand this isn't a incredibly uplifting story off the bat. The very fact that these students got out, they protested, they challenged the existing systems, and they did what they thought was morally right, I think is an inspiration for anyone who wants to go out and protest and attempt to cause change. You might not have those initial successes right away, but it can be part of, as we'd say, a incremental progress that eventually leads to success on a larger scale. Just like the challenge against apartheid in general, individuals like Nelson Mandela and others in South Africa itself, they didn't see success in the 1950s. They didn't see success in the 1960s. It's not until the early 1990s, after nearly half a century of white supremacist rule, that these individuals have success. So I think in Florida, we can see it as, yes, maybe not as resounding as we would like, but it's part of this mass wave of movement that takes place in the 1980s, that Florida, again, is a small 
but I think worthwhile talking about section of. And would you say that's the legacy um, of, of these events that happened in this time period? I think more broadly the legacy, to speak frankly, is the fact that protest works. And even if it doesn't work in creating the immediate change that you want it to, it informs individuals. It lets them make sure that people are aware of the challenges, the problems, and the injustices that exist within our society. And in my talk in particular, I talk about how when we talk about the anti-apartheid protest more broadly, what we are seeing is a local, national, and global movement against injustice. And in our own tumultuous times, looking at successful movements against injustice, that might be helpful for our current moment. And looking at how we can improve, benefit, and at the same time create meaningful change for our society by looking at movements like these, modeling them a bit, and using what we can to better the future as a whole. Awesome. Awesome chat that I had with you. I appreciate it, Dr. Ivy, for sitting down with me really quickly to capture the essence of your presentation. Like I told you off the mic, I wish I was a clone and just could go to all these panels. I mean, there's just so much. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. I have with me here John Benesek from the UCF Libraries. Hello, John. Um, I gravitated towards your presentation as an undergrad history student. Um, now going to do my honors thesis, but just in general, the research and the work that goes with being a, a, an up-and-coming historian. So what were some of, uh, some of the highlights and main takeaways you want to highlight to our listeners about your panel presentation? So my presentation, I, I was sort of in the middle of two other presenters, and one was talking about... Uh, the idea that not everything that's you're going to need for your research is available online, so make sure you're making good use of the library, maybe even making contacts at the library so you know how to use all the different resources besides like the online databases. And then the last presenter was going to be our archivist who was going to talk about the ethics and protocol of using archives. And so I was sort of in the middle as kind of a bridge between the two. And so I talked about a couple students I'd worked with recently who are doing research and projects that maybe there was some online content, but I think there was also a lot of other content that was not going to be available online. It was going to require them to actually, and this is what I refer to as like a really underrated uh, research skill, is like getting comfortable talking to people and making contacts and networking. Um, so one of them was a student who was uh, planning to do an oral history project as part of her honors thesis. Um, I realized during our first meeting that she had never hadn't really planned out how to do how to you know first of all how to conduct a good interview what is that besides just putting a microphone in somebody's face and asking questions uh, there's a lot of protocol there um, but then beyond that there's all this uh, other uh, relevant information about um, how to store how to transcribe uh, the interviews once you've conducted them. Uh, making sure you go through the IRB process so you're, you've got the right to do human subject research and things like that. So she hadn't really like thought that through, like everything that goes into creating and managing an oral history project. Um, and so I just, my part of the presentation was like how high I put her and went from there to putting her in touch with people who know a lot more about it. Um, and it was that was like kind of a barrier for her because she hadn't like really realized she was gonna have to do all that, and then she was actually gonna have to talk to like some other people on campus about how to conduct and, and how to conduct interviews, and then how to go on beyond that, and how to manage an oral history project. So 
that was like helping a student, you know, kind of like overcome a personal barrier that she had. And then the second one um, was working with another student who was researching Japanese American literature and from uh, pre-World War II. So a lot of that material is like really under-documented. Um, and he was going to really have to cobble together like a bibliography from scratch just by like doing a lot of research and journal articles and, and books and you know making notes of names, but then going like one step beyond that and searching for those uh, the authors he was finding in the articles. Like uh, I was recommending using a source called WorldCat because in WorldCat you can limit your results to um, archival material. And so if you search like a person's name in WorldCat, limit the search to archival material that will like direct you to whichever institution around the country has archival material on that author, you know, if it exists. And then the, one of the cases I showed was like we found like one author who was referenced in an article, searched him in WorldCat, linked us to special collections at UCLA where there was a finding aid with all a whole bunch more information. So you would do that over and over again with all these authors you were citing, and slowly over time, you're going to start developing a bibliography with like a lot more context than you had in the very beginning. So, um, and that was kind of like my lead into uh, David Benjamin, who is our UCF special uh, collections and archivist, um, who was talking about the protocol because that's like the next step, right? It's like okay, you found the finding aid at UCLA. It, none of the materials online, so eventually you'll have to contact them. Um, and that's where you start getting into this like protocol. How do you do that? A lot of people who've never done it before maybe don't realize that there is like a protocol and they're going to have like rules and it shouldn't be a standoffish thing. It should be one of those things. You just have to like, sort of like you know, work within their system and they will help you find the material that you need to find for your project. So it's um, these, these are all examples of like students who come to me for help with something. Think I'm going to be able to find it for them online, realizing there's like a lot more to it. And I'm going to like sort of push them in these directions to help them out. Yeah, when I was um, going through the program for, for this event this year and I saw the, the library uh, lunch and learn, I, I circled it immediately and because um, I feel like it's a it's such a crucial part into not just like historical research, but research in general. And um, it's so crucial, yet a lot of people um, and people as in students and, you know, I, I, I see my, my peers so I, I could speak for them in the sense of it's kind of underrated like you said you know people don't value it and it's a good paper a good um thesis uh a good product at the end um is always based on that research foundation in the beginning so um i guess my question would be what would be some of your biggest advice to students like me not just in the history field but in other majors in terms of researching Oh, boy, that's, you can go a lot of different directions with that question. But um, so getting, getting back to one of the, the main points I was making in my presentation was about um, not being afraid to actually contact people, it seems. I, I, one of the points I made when I was talking is I do interact with a lot of students who, if the material is not available online, like in one of our databases, um, it, to them it just sort of doesn't exist. But you may remember another one of the uh, audience members made the point about um, if you if you are just searching for things that are available online, you're just going to be finding what you're looking for. You're, and the point about that is like once you start getting into uh, digging around, talking to people, maybe exploring what's available in other collections, say like an archive at UCLA or something like that, then you're going to find things 
that you had no idea existed that could take your research in a whole different direction. So I think if you want to, you're at that level where you want to take your research skills to the next level, it's like start getting in the habit of um, uh, reaching out to people. It can be your local, your librarian at your home institution, uh, the archivist, uh, use be good at networking it could be other professors or like other scholars who are like working in your field i sometimes tell students to uh don't be afraid to reach out to just identify who are the experts in the field you're researching don't be afraid even like shoot them an email and say hey do you, i'm working on this project do you have uh maybe a book or an article or something you can recommend for me and be surprised how often they will respond because they'll be excited that like a young researcher is like taking an interest in what they study and things like that so um this might all be part of like a, an umbrella term that you might call professionalizing. Um, you know, just like kind of like building, becoming aware of like, you know, uh, not just like what the resources are, but uh, who making contacts with people as, as we've been discussing, um, maybe networking a little bit, building up your portfolio and, and things like that. And just kind of like taking, taking a real professional approach to how you're doing research. Um, even if it's uh, you know just for like a paper for a class or for maybe like an under an honors thesis or something like that, you might think I have to do X, Y, and Z to get the paper done for this class. But is this like a skill or is this like a topic I might want to research in the future? Turn into an honors thesis, and I'm going to turn the honors thesis maybe into like something I do in grad school. So there might there might be like a next step. So always like kind of be thinking about it in those terms as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And then that's the goal um, that I'm trying to do with this honors thesis is why personally where I'm at with my topic, it's a uh, it's very tricky because I, I want to nail it down. But also, like you said, it's going in there and networking and finding out also more things. So I'll definitely take personally take your advice and take everything you and your other colleagues uh, today at the panel were talking about to heart because uh, I needed it. I needed to hear it. And I hope if there's anything our listeners and especially our listeners that if they're students um, take away from from this episode and this event of Knights History Cast is uh, our nine minute conversation um, because it's it's very crucial and very imperative. So uh, it was a pleasure to talking to you, John. I appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Hello, this is Sebastian Garcia from Knights History Cast, and I have with me here Cecilia Rodriguez Milanes. Hello, Cecilia. Um, what do you do in uh, UCF? I am a professor of creative writing and literature. Awesome. Um, so you were part of the panel presentation of uh, Puerto Rican arts and cultures five years after Hurricane Maria. Can you uh, explain to our listeners um, some of the highlights and main takeaways of your panel presentation, but also the, um, of your colleagues? We started off with Dr. Martinez Fernandez, who is a professor in the history department, and he was talking about the 20 plagues of the island. And I was trying to write them all down, and I, I didn't get them all, but he talked about the plague of colonialism and um, uh, depopulation, chronic unemployment, gender and homophobic violence, public debt, debt, uh, corruption, nepotism, like all these things that uh, have plagued the island. And he had uh, statistics about how the demographics had changed and also the list of the hurricanes that had hit the island in the last hundred years, uh, coinciding with the economic conditions. 
And then Dr. Lisa Nalbone, who's from Modern Languages, she did a lot of, uh, of talking of the different assistance programs to help people that came to Central Florida after Hurricane Maria. And she was very impressed by how the community, Central Florida, rallied and provided all these opportunities like, you know, language uh, classes for parents and children, uh, food drives, clothes drives, uh, leadership workshops, all these things. And um, she mentioned that we she and I wrote a grant together that was funded by the Florida Humanities Council to put on a program called um, Remembering, as in putting back together Puerto Rican arts and culture five years after Maria. And so she mentioned the speakers that were in our um, presentation, including, um, well, the moderator was Dr. Fernando Rivera, who is the director of the Puerto Rican Research Hub here at UCF. And we had the writer, Jakira Diaz, who was a UCF alum and the author of the book, Ordinary Girls. Hugo Cordero Rios, who is a professor at the University of Puerto Rico in Mayaguez, but he is a metal punk artist and writer also. And we didn't get a chance. We didn't have enough time to listen to his music, but it's really radical. And, you know, basically talking about the corruption and plagues of Puerto Rico and urging independence. And then uh, Professor Wanda Raimunde Ortiz, who is an artist and performance artist, and she noted um, her Exodus pilgrimage uh, performance. And I used uh, a five-minute video about that performance. And let me see, Dr. Jose Irizarri was kind of the person that talked to us about all these new programs and workshops and writers, particularly in Western uh, Puerto Rico, where University of Mayaguez is, all of these uh, artists that are creating new work after the hurricane. And so there was a handout about the different uh, artists in Western Puerto Rico. And then I think uh, Lisa also showed a clip of a uh, performance piece by poet Omar, Omar Iloy called Huracan. And it's on YouTube. And it's really powerful because it is, again, saying, you know, we should do for ourselves. We should grow our own and have sustainable, you know, agriculture. And after Fiona, he had two plots of land, and one of them was hit by a mudslide. So he has still one plot of land. But um, he is a, a poet that is also dealing with and addressing these issues in his poetry. Um, in your... In your presentation specifically, I was so captivated by um, the performance artist, Professor Wanda Ramundi Ortiz and her dress. And you emphasized a lot about carrying that debris that she collected. Can you, you want to expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. If, if people go to her website, which is just uh, raymundiart.com, you can see the video and you can see the dress. The She went to Puerto Rico after the hurricane to collect debris that was left over and in the streets after the hurricane. And she took her costume, the costume designer. I, I, I don't want to say her name because I don't want to get right, wrong, but she's a, the costume designer here at UCF. And they collected all this debris, the, the tarps, the you know uh, wires, hoses, broken signs, all of these things, and they created this like fifty pound dress made in the style of Puerto Rican folk uh, costume, like plena and bomba, and uh, she had a headpiece also, and she 
dragged that 50-pound dress through. She wore the dress and walked through downtown Orlando for about a mile, carrying that debris, like in symbolizing the kind of trauma that you carry, that baggage that you carry after such a, a, a disaster. And it culminated in her uh, performing at the Dr. Phillips Center to uh, Bomba music. Yeah, it was, I was in awe. It was a very powerful um, video. And um, I'm sad I didn't know it before. I never heard of it until the presentation, but I'm glad I know it now. And I'll post the, the link to that video in the description of this episode so our listeners can see because I, I think it's very important and imperative too. Um, so obviously this panel was about the five years after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. Um, what would you say the legacy of Hurricane Maria is? One of the things that I think is the legacy is that Puerto Ricans realized nobody was coming to help them, that they themselves within their own neighborhoods, within their own communities, within their own streets, had to help each other. They were jerry-rigging um, water from the river to go into the towns. They were making kinds of bridges that, you know, because they, they could not depend on the Puerto Rican government or the federal government for that matter. And so that was a big realization that, they ha had to do for themselves. They were very resilient. And it was like a slap that the uh, Hurricane Fiona, it was the same thing. That it was like, okay, who's going to help us? And we had to help ourselves. And so um, one of the things that I mentioned is that Jakira Diaz has an article in The Atlantic about independence for Puerto Rico and what it could look like. And she goes over you know, the, the, the disaster and trauma and, you know, trying to find her family and the historical context for the way Puerto Rico has been treated. And so some people don't like to say it's a colony, but it is absolutely a colony. You can call it whatever you want, but it is a colony. And so I think that the, the upshot of these storms is that people realize, you know what, maybe we're better off as an independent country because we can't depend on the status quo anymore. And statehood, you know, you can ask a historian or a political scientist, but I don't think American politicians would allow it because imagine a Spanish-speaking state to the nation. That would be, I don't think it would be accepted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one could argue that uh, Florida is turning into a little bit of that with, you know, Miami specifically. Uh, Miami not an American city, okay? Right. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you. I agree. I, I agree. Miami is not an American city, and um, Central Florida is very Latin. I mean, or uh, Osceola County is over 50% Hispanic, right? And motive, like 90% of those people are Puerto Rican. But above Central Florida, it's it's Florida. It's Southern Florida, you know, as in the South, yeah. not you know, so yeah, there's and and of course the leadership in the state of Florida doesn't really acknowledge um, from us down only pockets. <laughs> um, that what you said in your last answer kind of leads me to my final question. Um, what do you see? Where do you see uh, Puerto Rican history, literature, and culture in general? In you know, let's just say the next five years. Well, I I know for sure that Jakira is not just up and coming. She's established and she's going to be big. As a matter of fact, when the hurricane hit in, uh, Fiona, she had people like from Time Magazine and the New York Times calling her because she was like, oh, she's a Puerto Rican writer that we can talk about, right? 
and there are so many Puerto Rican writers. She's not the only one, but I think she has the platform now. And so I think people are listening to her. And Wanda's doing amazing work. And I know that she is, she's definitely, again, established, but she's going to be even more popular and well-known. Um, I teach Puerto Rican literature right now. And so we are looking at a lot of performance artists, like you saw Omar Eloy and all these, all these artists from Puerto Rico. And we're trying to work on a collaboration between the University of Puerto Rico a literary magazine and UCF and Valencia College too. So we're looking in the future to have some sort of bilingual Zoom performances. And so, yeah, be on the lookout for it. That's awesome. I hope that goes through. It's important and uh, I support it. Um, thank you so much uh, for taking, you know, 10 minutes of your time to have this little chat with me, Dr. Rodriguez Milanis. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate being asked. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed attending this event. It was my first time ever. It was my first time ever doing these type of, you know, uh, bum rush interviews on the spot. It was definitely a, a unique experience and I enjoyed it. And I want to give a shout out to everyone that put this event together. And I want to give a special, special shout out to Dr. Ben Broatmarkle, Dr. Connie Lester, Dr. Christine Ardelin. Dr. Jacob Ivey, John Venisek, and Dr. Cecilia Rodriguez Milanes for allowing me to interview them for a quick moment of their time. Um, I really enjoyed meeting them, uh, not just for the interview, but also on a professional and personal level. So it was great. So I appreciate you guys. So special shout out to them who are featured in this day one uh, episode of uh, the 2022 Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium event. I greatly appreciate every single one of you. You know what's the best part? We're not done. There is a day two, quote unquote, part two of this event. And that episode will come out tomorrow because, you know, tomorrow is day two. So please go make sure to check that out when it comes out tomorrow. Um, it'll be just as great as this first episode for Night's History Cast. I'm Sebastian Garcia. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future conversations about history. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it and see you in day two.